This podcast is a production of Faith Living Church. If you like what you hear, join us for church sometime in our Plantsville, Connecticut location, Saturdays, 6 p.m. or Sundays, 9 and 11 a.m. or online anytime at faithlivingchurch.com. Okay, so we were talking last, last week about one of the keys to being blessed, to living a life of blessing. And we're going to continue with that this week. So a little bit of a review this morning, and then we're going to get into, um, uh, into something really significant, I think, anyways, it was for me as I was studying it out. And uh, we're only actually going to spend time in a few scriptures, um, which will be cool. I mean, one of them's like a chapter and a half, but, you know. Only like three of them, so, okay. So, uh, so by way of review, what we talked about last week was he said that um, one of the things when it comes to even to the issue of our dealings with God that I've seen over time is, is the issue of spiritual error. And spiritual error leads us or can expose us to being deceived, to spiritual deception. So spiritual error can lead us to being spiritually deceived. And as I look out and have, have studied and have looked at life and things like this, um, by way of review, I talked about three, three big questions in our life that if we get those wrong, to the extent that we get those right, we guard ourselves from deception. To the extent that we get any one of those three wrong, we open ourselves up to spiritual deception from the devil. And, and so the first one is, the first question is very simple, who is God? And so what I mean by that of who is God is, is, is in general speak, generally speaking, if I need to understand the character and nature of who God is, I need to understand who he is, what he's all about, what he's like, because if I get that wrong, I, my whole worldview will be off. And there are a lot of people that get that wrong. There are a lot of people that call themselves Christians that get that wrong. We'll talk about that. But there's a lot of people that get that wrong. And if you get that wrong, then, then, then your whole worldview is off. Because when you ask yourself, where did I come from, and where am I going, and why am I here, and all those kind of big life questions, if you get the first one wrong about who is God, some people say, who is God? There is no God. That means that their worldview of who God is is that God does not exist. And then that has downstream effects. We're actually going to talk about worldviews a little bit today. That has downstream effects into how you view things, how you view things like the fact that I'm sitting up here and, and the first time I get to be in church without a mask is just because I'm preaching and all you guys have masks on. How do you view the pandemic? How do you view elections? How do you view finances? How do you view hardship? If, if the idea is that you have no God or that he's different or that he doesn't care, think about how that would affect you. Right? So that's the first one, is who is God? What is his character and nature? And how do we find out the character and nature of God? It can only be because it's revealed to us, and this is why we need to spend a bunch of time in, in God's word and a bunch of time in scripture looking and understanding these things. That's number one. Number two is, if first one is who is God. The second one is who am I? Who is man? Not just who am I personally, but who is mankind? What is, what is the character and nature of mankind? Are we just an animal? Was our uncle a monkey swinging from the trees? Right? Did we come up from some primordial soup? Did we do that? Or, or, or were we created? Those, that, that question there has implications. Right? Am I more than, than what I think I am? Or am I less than what I think I am? That, those things have implications. Who is man? What am I capable of? What am I responsible for? And the last one is the intersection of those two is what is God's relationship to man? Or how does God view us? Or how does God interact with us? How does God deal with man? If there is a God, how does he deal with man? 
And the answer to that question of how does he view us, and I'll give you one, one simple thing, which is, which is the, the, the primary driver for what we're going to talk about last week and then and this week, is when, fantastic mask, I want one of those, it says Steelers on it, that's fantastic. He doesn't agree, but he agrees, I like that. Um, uh, so, uh, total aside, but I happen to see that right from the Lord. All right, fantastic. All right, so, um, <laughs> so, uh, so. One of the ways that, that if we misunderstand how God views us or how God deals with us, we could believe that God deals with us the same way we see everything else dealt with in this world. For example, the primary method by, with, by which people are accepted by other people is performance. How, how do you know if you're doing well in school? You're graded. You're judged based on your performance. You could be a perfectly nice person, but not any good at math, and you will get C's. Right? How am I judged when I go to work? By performance. You're judged based on your performance. Now, now whether you're like me, where I have a job in sales, and so my performance is just out there all the time, and if I don't perform well, I don't make money, my family starves, and I get fired. Right? Or you're an accountant or a nurse or something, whatever that else thing is, and you sit down every quarter or every year and you get a review and they say, these are the six things that we've been judging you on, and these are your management objectives, and, and these are the things, and, and now you get a 3% raise or a 2% raise or no raise or you get whatever, right? And so we're judged, right? And everything about it, guys, be, be honest, right? I've been judged by my neighbors based on how good my grass is. Some of you guys think that you're judged by your neighbors based on your, on your, on your decorations, your, your holiday decorations, right? And so all the time we're being judged. As a matter of fact, one of the things that I found really hard was, was then we try to talk about how does God view us, and now is it any wonder that we have, a, that we have this view of God that I'm somehow scoring points with God by, by how good I'm acting? Is that any wonder? I mean, all my life, everything around us is a performance-oriented thing. And here comes God and says, I love you, and you're acceptable because of who you are. And, and if there was a, a work that was done that makes you acceptable to me, it's my work that I did for you on the cross. And now all you have to do is say yes to me, and then, and then you're, part of my, you're, you're, you're reconciled with me, your sins are forgiven, and everything's good. And, and everything about our mindset of how this world works says, no, that can't be true. That's crazy talk. Right? And so it's really easy to take that and apply that to God, right? You see it all the time. You see people that, that think that they're working towards God. As a matter of fact, there are really only two religions in the entire world. Now, there might be different languages, and there might be different gods, and there might be different crazy, all kinds of stuff, right? But basically, there's two religions in the world. Religion number one is a works mentality of me working my way back into favor with God. That is, that is every religion in the world you could, you, could, you could read the Bhagavad Gita, you could read all kinds of stuff, you could, you know, you could read uh, uh, the Quran, you could read all, and, but basically it all comes down to what do I need to do in order to gain favor with deity so that I can progress? That's what it comes down to. And then Jesus comes down and says, yeah, that's not how any of it works. And we're like, yeah, really God, I, I'm not sure I believe that. And you can see it even in our own lives, let me ask this question. How, how is it in our families? Are our, children, are our children acceptable? Are our children loved because of how they perform? 
This is a thing that I, we all shake our heads, no, I understand that. But this is a thing that I needed to confront because, quite frankly, there's a whole bunch of, you know, my students, I know you guys are going to go take all your bumper stickers off after this sermon. I mean, my student made the honor roll. My student did this. My, you know, we've got all the different things. Of, and there's a, there's the, the, they went from the little stick figure things to then they, then they sell the stick figure things where the one kid's playing lacrosse and the other kid's, right? And so you have all these different sticks. And, and what are we doing? We're saying my kid and we're bragging about who we are, and, and sometimes our kids go, is the only reason I exist to, to give you something to talk about with your friends? And so we were confronted with this personally in, in, in our family when my daughter Caitlin was born. Because if many of you know, Caitlin has uh, special needs, and, and she has a number of them, a significant number of them, and significant, um, significant deficiencies in, in a lot of areas that we would call important, Right? And so, so we were confronted with the idea that there is, there are, this, Caitlin is never going to give us a sticker to put on the back of our car to brag to everybody in town. Caitlin, she's just, that's not going to be her. Caitlin's not going to have the things that you post on Facebook about these accomplishments. That other special needs families would understand the accomplishments that she has, but for the, for the most part, just, it's just not there. And so the only thing that Caitlin can be is my kid. And the question to me, as, as an American, as an adult, as a kind of type A personality kind of guy, um, is, is that enough? And when I came to the realization that that was really how God viewed us, then the question become, became, is, do I treat my other four daughters like that? Do I treat my other four daughters and say, you know what, it doesn't matter what you do in life, it doesn't matter who, who you become, what you accomplish, you're acceptable to me because you're my daughter and for no other reason. And, and, and quite frankly, a little bit of a challenge emotionally for me, but and something that I think if you talk with my kids, they'd probably say, he's still working on it. And I, and I am. And a lot of that is because, the, you know, the world goes like this, and you want the best for them and all that kind of stuff like this, and you know that, they, you know that there's things that they need to do in order to be successful. But the reality is, what is successful? If I get those three questions right, if, I, if, I, if me, if one of my daughters as an adult gets those three questions right, and they know who God is, and they know who they are, and they know how he views her, isn't that enough? I would say, yeah. I would say, yeah. Now, nice to have your own house and move out, but um, it's enough. So these three things open us up. So we talked about last week, and we're going to talk a lot of detail this week, about the issue of humility, and how humility is a key to blessing. Humility is actually a weapon Humility is a weapon that can, be, that can be used to lever you into God's presence. Because the opposite is pride. And pride is a weapon that keeps you away from God's presence. Pride destroys everything. Pride is the basis of, of everything that is wrong. Look back at the Garden of Eden. The very first sin was pride. And so we're going to take a couple of minutes in review, define what humility is, and then really dig into a couple of scriptures, really just a couple of scriptures. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse, uh, verses 4 and 5 says, The weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They're not things that you can pick up and hold. But they're mighty in God for pulling down strongholds and casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Every high thing that, 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 tries, to, that tries to block out the knowledge of God. And bringing what? Every thought into the captivity to the obedience of Christ. Friends, this is the thing. The battleground, spiritual warfare is, 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 is engaged, and the battleground is here between my ears. That's where it is. 
That, that, that's the sole place. That's where it is. It's in between my ears because once I have the way that I look at the world, it will affect how I, how I act, right? But the battle is won or lost in here. And so we need to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And, and, and these things about who is God and who is man and, how to, and what is God's relationship to us. And so we talked about the issue of humility. And humility is a hard thing to talk about because as soon as you think you got it, you probably don't. You probably get proud about your humility, right? So, so one of the things we talked about was, was, was this. Um, let me try this. Um, don't think about elephants. Exactly. How many of you guys started thinking about elephants? Yeah, really hard. So if I say, if I say that humility is not, is not, let's define what it is not. Humility is not thinking less of myself. Humility is not putting myself down. Oh, it was nothing. Oh, I'm not that special. Oh, I'm not. Because the reality is that if God has made you and gifted you with something, to say that that is not much or not anything special is an affront to our creator. If God has made you smart, if God has made you talented, if God has gifted you with music, if God has made you a great athlete, if God has given you the ability to speak in front of people, if God has made you uh, handsome or pretty or, 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 or able to, to, to engage with lots of, a real extrovert and able to engage with lots of people, uh, if God has made you a gifted evangelist, those are all gifts from God. The problem with pride is when we take what God has given us and we ascribe it to our own goodness. We say, that thing that I have, that's because I'm special, as opposed to that thing that I have is because God gave it to me. That would be pride. But humility is not thinking less of myself. Humility is thinking of myself less. Now, the problem with that is the the issue with with the elephants, right? If I say, think about yourself less, what do you wind up doing? You wind up thinking about yourself to understand how much you're thinking about yourself. And then in that case, who are you thinking about? Yourself, and then it doesn't work. And so the real, the real thing and the easy thing to do, or the thing that's worked for me in the issue, in the issue of trying to work humility into my life, and I, listen, you heard what I said, trying to work humility into my life, is instead of thinking about myself less, I want to have a proper perspective on who I am, and I want to have a proper perspective on who God is, and so what I can do through God's word, through prayer and time with him, I can focus on the greatness of God, and I find that the more time I focus on the reality of God, that often God is way too small for me. And so the more I focus on who God is, and the more I understand the greatness and the amazing power of God, the more I understand that, the less I become the less significant I become. Not the less in, in gifting or anything like that. Not, not, not wrong or bad. But I just become less important in the story because he's the thing that's important in the story. And so I would say that the, that the key to humility is to focus on the greatness of God because that will make us by nature feel our rightfully small place. So it's an inverse proportion. Who is bigger? If I, have, if I believe that God is, is, is bigger, then I have perspective. It gives me perspective. And this is what I mean. This is, we talked about this a little bit last week, just by way of review. Um, in areas of forgiveness or offense or judging other people or having a works mentality or dealing with hard things, whether it's difficult situations that come because of other people or difficult situations that come because of circumstances in life that maybe weren't from anybody else, my desire to grab and take control of that 
or my thinking that this is the end of the world tells me how big my God is. See, it's a diagnostic thing. If I'm easily offended, it means that I don't see that God saw that happening and and won't protect me. If I'm easily overwhelmed with circumstances, it means that my God is too small. And I need to go back and read Psalms where it says that he, he measures out the oceans in the palm of his hand. And maybe I need to take a trip down to the ocean and look at it and go, ooh, okay, God's big enough. He's big enough for that. He's big enough for me. If I believe that God doesn't, if I feel alone and I believe that God isn't, isn't with me, then what I'm saying is, is I believe that God is, you know, like Bette Midler. He's watching from a distance, right? If you go back to that, if you're old like me and you remember that song, um, you go back and you listen, you're like, wow, the horrible theology, Bet, right? Whatever. Okay. So the issue is, the issue is, is I believe that God is out there, but he doesn't care about me personally. And that means that I don't believe that God is transcendent. So the bigger I have, a God, the less I need to think about myself because I understand who he is and what he does. We are going to uh, just skip right through this one, but I want to show this to you. This is Paul because we're going to spend a whole bunch of time in Philippians today. This is Paul in verse 323, and he says, Beware of the dogs, beware of the evildoers, beware of the mutilation. Now, this was people who believed that um, who believed that Gentiles needed to first become Jews and actually get circumcised in order to be part of the covenant before they could become Christians. And Paul was like, yeah, no, you're getting it all wrong. And that's what he said. He says, he says, we are the circumcision. We are the people who are in covenant relationship with God, who do these three things, who worship God in the spirit, who rejoice in Christ Jesus. And, and if you've got your Bible, whatever, underline that, make a note in that, rejoice in Jesus Christ. That's a really important thing. And then have no confidence in the flesh. It doesn't mean that I don't recognize that I might have gifts and talents from God. But what it means is I don't place my confidence in those because I place my confidence in what God has given me. And even if I recognize that I have gifts and talents, I recognize that that in and of itself has come from God. Right? My ability to actually stand, because there's people who can't stand, my ability to stand and complete a sentence in front of you, that is actually a gift from God. And so I can't ascribe it to my own goodness. God has gifted me with that. Okay. So humility creates this perspective, and we're going to spend a whole bunch of time in Philippians, uh, in the first couple of chapters of Philippians. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to, I'm going to read the first part of, um, of, of Philippians 1, and we'll kind of read through it. And then, uh, the, the, and then we'll really dig in in Philippians 2. And the reason for this, and Pastor Ron taught me this a long time ago when we were learning to study the Bible, when he was teaching me to study the Bible. He said, if you ever see the word therefore, you have to stop and see what it's there for. Right? In other words, if, if someone says therefore, they're drawing a conclusion. You have to kind of go back up above that and see, the, read it in context. Right? And so the, Philippians 2 starts with the word therefore. And the context of that is Philippians 1. Right? And so we're going to go back into Philippians 1 and understand the perspective that Paul had and take that into Philippians 2. Now, background on, on Philippians is that uh, everybody knows Paul was, uh, he, 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 um, he considered himself the least of the apostles because he persecuted the Christians. Then he becomes a Christian. Then they're like, hey, this is great, but you know what? You should probably not hang around here. Uh, why don't we send you off someplace? So he went up to Tarsus, and then he was called over to Antioch, and there was a big revival in Antioch, which is, which is up in, um, uh, 
I want to say it's modern day Turkey, but it might be Syria, right in, right in that area. And, uh, and then he, the, Paul and Barnabas went out and they went on these missionary journeys and they went all through what would be modern day Turkey, uh, Greece, kind of eastern, south, you know, Asia Minor, all the way over into, uh, into Europe, into um, Italy. And so they were kind of in that area over there and they're on, on all these missionary journeys. And then Paul gets arrested. And because he was a Roman citizen, if you read the book of Acts, you find out that he winds up getting put in a Roman prison. And so it was from in prison that Paul wrote most of the New Testament. Understand that it was from in prison. And the Philippians, he was writing to the church at Philippi. So he was writing to the church at Philippi, and he was writing from prison. And this is what he said. He said, I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me, being arrested being falsely accused, after he had been beaten, being taken in prison to Rome. He says, the things which happened to me actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. Listen to his perspective here. So it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. And so when people understand that I'm arrested for for Jesus Christ, they want to know why I was arrested, and they want to know more about Christ. And so people are becoming Christians. You read later in a different different book, you find out that a number of of the people in Caesar's household, meaning his relatives and his palace guards, were actually becoming Christians. And it was because Paul was in, in a jail cell. He says, and most of the brethren of the Lord, having become confident in my chains, are more bold to speak the word without fear. Me being in prison is actually emboldening other Christians to preach the gospel. He says, now some indeed preach from envy and strife, and some from goodwill. Some are actually out there trying to make it worse for me. They're actually preaching the gospel to try to get me in more trouble. And some are doing it because they're genuinely... Now, he's actually saying that there are people out there preaching the gospel to try to get me killed. And listen to what Paul says about it. He says, the former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, and they're supposing to add affliction to my chains. But the latter, the people who are doing it out of goodwill, are doing it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for for the defense of the gospel. Now, do you think that Paul could be offended here? There were people that were like, oh, he's in prison for preaching the gospel? I'm going to go and preach the gospel to make more people mad at Christians so that he gets in more trouble. Maybe he'll even get killed. And listen to what Paul says. Instead of being offended, instead of blogging about it, instead of Snapchatting about it, this is what he said. He said, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And in this I rejoice. And will continue to rejoice. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer. My being in prison is causing you over in Philippi to pray. Through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Christ Jesus, of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed. With all boldness and always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. He's saying, he's saying, the longer I stay here the more people will know about Jesus. And if that means that the last thing that people know about Jesus was that an innocent man, simply because he was a Christian, was fed to the lions, then as they're eating, as the lions are tearing apart my body, people will see that and, and know that it was because of Christ. And so Christ will be, will, a light will be shined on the name of Christ, and I'm okay with that. I don't know that I would be okay with that. Well, Paul said he was. 
Listen to what he says. For to me, for, 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 for to me, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. He's saying they are both the same thing. Why? Because last week we talked about this and we said that one of the things that, um, that was required of us was to walk humbly with our God. Right? And, and a lot of times we focus on the issue of humbleness. Oh, let me be humble. But what I want to focus on is the issue of with God. Right? Because God says, I want you to walk humbly with me. Which is a really cool concept. What it means is that God is transcendent. He transcends all time and space. And he knows your name. And he knows who you are. And he knows what you've been through. And he knows the things that you don't tell anybody else. He knows those things. And yet he wants to be with you. God wants to be with me. That means that God, the presence of God is in my life right now. And here's the great thing. Because I know who God is, I know that God exists outside of time. And because God exists outside of time, what that means is that here we are on Sunday. And do you think, by the way, I think we got something specifically big coming up on Tuesday, right? Okay. Do you think that God is in Wednesday already? Do you think that God is in Wednesday already? The answer is yes. He exists outside of time. That means that time looks like this to him. That means that he knows the end from the beginning because here's the beginning and here's the end and here's God. He's pretty big. That means that God already knows the, 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 the results of the election. Do you think that he'll be God on Wednesday? Now, look, I want my guy to win. And, and anybody who wants to talk with me privately about, about who and why and all that kind of stuff like that, happy to have it. I talk for coffee. But, um, but that's, that's, neither, that's actually not the point, isn't it? Because, because I've been a Christian when there's been a Republican president. And I've been a Christian when there's been a Democrat president. And, and there are people around the world who have ne- had neither. All they've had is dictators. And God is still God, isn't it? Isn't that true? And so here's the amazing thing, is that God promises to be with me right here, right now. And he promises to be in my future, working things out, waiting for me to get there. This is why Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. The same Spirit of Christ who is in you right now is, is, is the same Jesus that is in the future making a place in heaven for you. And if that's the case in heaven, why isn't it the case on Wednesday? Or next Sunday? This is an amazing concept. And here's what Paul says. He says, he says listen, if, if, if I live, I'm living with Christ. If I die, I'm dying with Christ. Now, heaven's better Heaven's better because there's a whole lot of things that, that go away, hurt and pain and shame and, and guilt and, and, and a sinful nature and all that kind of stuff like that goes away. He says this, he says, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. If I live in the flesh, it will mean fruit from my labor. So what, shall, what I shall choose, I can't tell. I, I, I'm stuck at this question. For I'm hard pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. The older you get. The more you see, the more you're like, yeah, I could give it all up and just be with Jesus. But nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. And being confident in this, and he says what he thinks is going to happen, I know that I shall remain and continue with you for all your progress and, and the joy of faith. And your rejoicing may become more abundant in Christ Jesus by me coming again. This is why he says here in verse 27, he says, I want you to look at my situation. I want you to look at my circumstances and how I'm responding to being put in jail for preaching the gospel and understand the greatness of God's love for us. And then he says this, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel. Let your conduct be worthy of the gospel 
So that whether I come and see you or I am absent, I hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the face of the gospel. Now, how, how can we tell whether or not our conduct is worthy of the gospel? By how we dress, by the music that we listen to, by the movies that we see or don't see, by the books that we burn, by the people that we fail to associate with because they're sinners? Absolutely none of those things have anything to do with it. And some of them actually represent just fear and sin on our own part. Listen to what he says. He says, and not in any way terrified by your adversaries. The way that our conduct can be worthy of the gospel is to not be terrified by people who oppose the gospel. To not show fear when people oppose the gospel. Now, we live in a free country. There's many people right now who are being tortured and put... As a matter of fact, there were more people killed in the last 100 years for being Christians than were killed in the first 2,000 years of Christianity. Did you know that? We don't read about it because we're all absorbed in you know, who's winning the um, football game or what's happening here or what's happening with the economy. But there's a lot of people that are being killed simply because they're Christians. The Bible says that fear tells people that my God is small. Listen, I'm not, I'm not about like, you know, well, let's go out there and just poke, poke the bear. I'm not saying that. But fear says that people are, tells, me that, tells people that my God is small. A lack of fear in the face of confrontation, a lack of fear in the face of uh, oppression, a lack of fear in the face of opposition. Listen to what it says. It says, not in any way terrified by your adversaries. A lack of fear is to them proof of perdition, but to you of salvation and that from God. It says that a lack of fear, when people expect, when people come against us simply for being Christians, simply for doing the right thing, for loving other people, for for serving other people, and people come against that, when we are afraid, that's what they expected, and it proves to them that you don't believe God. But when we are not afraid, it actually proves to us that God exists because the the God of peace will be with us. But it proves to non-Christians that that they're on the wrong track. It says it's proof to them of their perdition. They're like, whoa, this is not normal. This is not normal. This is not rational. Why do you think that it is? Why do you think that it is that the, where, by the way, does anybody know where the uh, fastest growing church in the world is? What country, what country, in what country in the world today is Christianity expanding at the fastest rate? Someone said China. Someone said Korea. Who said Iran? Who said, who said, (laughs) Iran? I didn't, sounded good. Iran. Iran. The most repressive Islamic nation in the world is where the church is growing the fastest. Hmm. I wonder if there's a direct correlation between suffering and the expansion of the gospel. Says the preacher who was writing from jail. He says this. He says, he says um, it's to you, to your avatars, what is the proof of perdition, but to you salvation and that from God. Okay. For to you it is great. Oh my goodness. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ. It has been granted. It is a gift on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. 
It is a gift, not to suffer for doing wrong, not to suffer for getting the questions wrong and lashing out, not, not to suffer for, for being prideful, but to suffer for Christ's sake is actually a gift. Having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here is in me. And many of the people in Philippi wound up being killed for their faith. As a matter of fact, one of the reasons why Paul wrote to Timothy, do you guys know why Timothy was, became the, even became the pastor of the church at Ephesus? Timothy became the pastor of the church at Ephesus. At the time, the church at Ephesus was the largest church in the world. Scholars estimate that the church in Ephesus had 70,000 people in it. Now, that's a lot of people because there were less people then. That would be like having, oh, a church of like a million people or so. And Paul had actually founded that church on one of his apostolic visits and went back and sent Timothy to be the pastor. And one of the things he had to tell Timothy was there's a whole bunch of things like here's how you pick new leaders and here's why you shouldn't be afraid, but don't let anybody despise you because you're young. Because Timothy wasn't old enough to be a, to be a pastor in their, in their cultural eyes. They thought you had to be at least 40 years old before anybody took you seriously. And Timothy was probably in his late 20s, early 30s at the time. And they're like, you're too young to be a pastor. And Paul sent Sent him. And then he said, here's how you pick all new leaders. Do you know why Timothy had to go be the pastor of the largest church in the world and pick all new leaders? Because all the leaders had been killed. There was a great persecution of the church. And the church is scattered. And many of the leaders who hadn't been killed had left and fled. And so Timothy had to go and take it over. So let's not, let's not kid ourselves and think that this is the first time anything like this has ever happened. Right? In, in our country, we're just like, oh, you know, you won't make a cake and we're going to take you to court. Right? In other countries, they kill you for it. I'm not saying it's, wrong, it's right or wrong. Right? Uh, uh, you know, it's, 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 you know, we shouldn't have sympathy over the, the cake maker. Right? But let's put things in proper perspective here. Now, here we come to the therefore thing. We've got about 20 minutes left. And we're going to do the therefore. Finish up Philippians. Show you what this rope is about. Talk about humility. Okay? Therefore, understanding Paul's perspective, Paul said, even if I suffer, it's not that big of a deal. Why? Because God is so much better. And even if I suffer, it's, it's not even going to take that long. Like, if you kill me, it just won't even take that long. And then I'll be with God forever. He had a different perspective on things. He says, therefore, therefore, in light of all of Philippians 1, If there is any consolation in Christ, if there is any comfort of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if there is any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy. If you want to do anything for me, if you tell me that you love me, you want to do anything for me, anything? He didn't say, get me a better lawyer. He didn't say, uh, you know, start a GoFundMe for my legal defense. He said, if there's anything, be like-minded. Have the same love. Being of one accord and one mind. All of us be like-minded. Does that mean that we have to like the same team? Does that mean we even have to vote the same way? No, but we should recognize, we should recognize the, the individual value of each person. We should recognize just because we're using oxygen and we're human beings, even people who disagree with us, even people who are not, Christians, we should recognize the intrinsic value of that human being just because they are made in the image of God. And if we'll do that, and if I will look at you and say, you know what, you bring to our body, you bring to our local congregation, um, you bring to our congregation something that I can't. And I may bring something that you can't. But together, we add value. 
If we'll do that and we'll say, let's focus on the things on which we agree and the things that we don't agree on, unless they're really important, like who is Jesus? Does it really matter? Does it really matter? Eh, probably not so much, right? Ask any one of my daughters, by the way, and I'll use them as an example since they're up there. Ask any one of my daughters, by the way, and we talk about um, marrying them off just because I want to get them out of the house. Um, that's, that's not actually true. Um, we talk, about, we talk about this, and we talk about what we call the list, and, and we really went through this with Sarah, and we have come down to this with, with our other daughters as well. And um, you, know what, you know what our list consists of for, for a guy, for one of my daughters? A godly man. Like, that's it. Like, that's it. A godly man. That's it. He needs to be, he needs to, to be a man. And what do I mean by a man? I just don't mean male. I mean a man. A, a man. A, you know, not, not some guy who, who thinks he's all that, but he really isn't. But, but a, a guy who's comfortable in his own skin, who's comfortable being around other men, who takes responsibility. He's the marks of a, of a man. And guys will get that. They, we see posers all the time, right? And, um, and it doesn't matter. That's not an age thing. That's, that's a who you are thing, right? Are you socially responsible, personally responsible? Do you respect some things like that? And the other part is that you're godly. Because that's the most important part. That's where we put it first, right? A godly man. You know what? I'd, 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 we've told him, we said, we don't care. Black, white, Asian, Hispanic, short, tall. My, most of my daughters are tall, so they have a personal tall thing um, that like their husbands to be taller than them, or at least the same height. But it doesn't matter if they like sports. It doesn't matter if they, right? It, a lot of those things don't matter. My son-in-law, he, he, he didn't even like football. I didn't understand that, but he didn't, he was like, I just, I didn't even grow up in a house, like, that wasn't a thing for me, like, sports were something totally different, and, and so we've just convinced him, you know, well, if you're going to like football, which he still doesn't, it's not a thing for him, that's okay, that doesn't matter, does that make sense? Those things don't matter, what we should do is we should boil it down to the things that really matter, do you love God? Are you made in the image of God? Let's start there at the things that we can agree on, he says, be like-minded, have the same love, be of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing, now here's what, how, the, how this works. He gives us three things here. He says, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. So the first one is, is what we're to do. We're to, to be like-minded. We're to have the same love and we're to be of one accord. How does this work? Humility is the key to unity. Humility is the key to blessing, but humility is the key to unity because I might recognize that you might have something better than me. Or even if it's different, it's equally valuable. He said here, he says, he says, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. That's something that I need to check. I need to check myself. Not that ambition is bad, but selfish ambition. Am I doing this thing, even something that looks like a good thing, am I doing it so that people think better of me because it feeds my pride? That would be the first thing. And I can't tell that. You can't tell that about me. I can't tell that about you. Can't, can't really tell that. So this is the first thing. It's an internal thing. He says, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. This is such a radical concept. This is such a radical. I actually got this from a Greek scholar. Listen to what he says here. He says, the ancient Greeks considered this word lowliness of mind. They considered lowliness of mind to be a fault and not a virtue. The pagan and secular idea of manhood is self-assertiveness, imposing one's will on others. And so whenever, so whenever anyone stooped to others, they only did it out of compulsion. They only did it because they were forced to. 
And so this action was considered disgraceful. The idea of saying, no, you before me. You before me was considered disgraceful and unmanly. And yet Paul is saying, this is how it actually happens. You turn the whole worldview on its head. Now, let's talk about this for just a second. When it says to esteem others as better than myself, it doesn't say, oh, no, you're much better than I am. Because, again, what is that doing? That is focusing on me and putting myself down. That's saying, even though I am an equal to you, think about this as a husband-wife relationship. Even though the wife is equal and a co-heir with Christ, with her husband, she willingly submits herself and says, no, you lead That is not an act of someone saying, oh, no, you're much better at it, because quite frankly, guys, they're probably better at it than we are, right? But but that's the thing. She She says, even though we're equal, even though we're equal... I am going to follow your lead. That's that's an act of her saying, I'm trusting that God is going to, this is a crazy thing for my wife to say, I'm trusting that God is going to protect me and lead my life through you, you you, you fallible, imperfect person. And my response is, I should probably go spend a whole bunch more time praying, (laughs) right? (laughs) Val does this all the time. I'll I'll ask her about a decision. She goes, I don't know. I'm just trusting that you're hearing from God. I'm like, you've got that smirk on your face that I should go pray right now, shouldn't I? You know? and, and I'm like, my job is then I'm held responsible to her. But that doesn't mean that she's not equal in value or, or even talent, and in many cases has greater talents and giftings than I do. Does that make sense? So when we esteem one another as better, it says, it says, I see you, and I see what you're capable of, and I know what I'm capable of, but I'm going to treat you like you're better than me. I'm going to treat you like you're better than me. Not taking anything away from myself, I'm just recognizing who you are, I'm going to treat you like you're better than me. The, the Bible says that the way that this was worked in the, in, the, in the Greek world, that was unmanly, that was effeminate, that was, that was children did that. And Paul says, you do that. Because when other people see that, it'll turn the world on its head, because that's what Jesus did. So, he says, one, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. Two, in lowliness of mind, esteem others as better than himself. And three, look out not only for your own interest, doesn't mean you don't look out for your own interest, but not only for your own interest, but also for the interests of others. We should be actively looking out for opportunities to serve one another, to, to help one another grow, to, to, to do things that bring people closer to Jesus. And that is true, whether it is true of Christians or non-Christians, it doesn't say in the, in the body of Christ only. It's us trying to actively help and, and be with other people. There's a whole thing that you can look at about the effect of Christianity on the Western world, and I'd suggest that you take some time and look at it um, because it's really, really important. Then he goes this, and here's what we're getting to. He says, let this mind be in you which is also in Christ Jesus. What we're about to talk about, he says, he doesn't give us the idea of mental ascent. He says, don't agree with this. You have to work this into your life. We have to work this mind into our life. We are given the mind of Christ, but then we're to work out our salvation. And what that means is we're to work on our salvation until, until the gospel affects every area of my life. He says, let this mind be in you, which is in Christ Jesus. You want to see an example of humility? Let's look at this. 
Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in the appearances of man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Let's break this down a little bit here. When it says being in the form of God, this answers the first question of who is God. Being in the form of God is, is, a, is a word, a, a structure in, in the original Greek that Paul specifically, by the leading of the Holy Spirit, picked. That means the unchangeable essence. Jesus Christ is the creator God. In the beginning it was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. Through him, who? The word Everything was created and nothing was made that has been made except through him. So when, when, it says, when it says God spoke, that's Jesus speaking and making this all happen. God the Father is, is, is the author of creation. Jesus is the agent of creation. The Holy Spirit is the empower of creation. Jesus is the creator and he cannot stop being God because for him to stop being God... Everything would fall to pieces because he is God and can't stop that. That means that he didn't stop being God when he came to earth. That's amazing. That is absolutely astounding. He didn't change his nature. He says being in the form of God, it's his very essence and and shape, if you will. God doesn't have a shape, but the shape of it, if you will. He says, it says here that, that he may have emptied himself of the rights and prerogatives of deity, but he did not stop being God. And that's why it says here, it says he made himself of no reputation and then taking the form of a man. Jesus added humanity to him. He didn't take godliness away and become a man. And like all, when he was filled with the Holy Spirit, all of a sudden he knew he was God. That's not how it worked. Jesus knew he was God the entire time. He emptied himself of some of the prerogatives of being God. But in humility, he said, I'm going to go and I'm going to be a man. And he added humanity to us. This is really important for us to understand because it helps us understand the effect of what happens when we're faced with tragedy and and confrontation and, and oppression and people who don't like us or just bad things that happen in our life. He took humanity and became fully man. Now, his nature was still the nature of God, meaning he had no propensity to sin. He didn't have a sinful nature like you and I have because we get that from Adam and Eve, and that's why it's really important that, that, that Jesus was born a virgin because his father would have then been God, and that's how this works, okay? It's a whole other subject. But it says here, it says, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery. It wasn't, it wasn't something to be grasped at. It wasn't something for him to try to get um, godliness or godlikeness because why would, you, why would you steal something you already own? That's what it means there. That's what it means. It says he did not consider robbery to be equal with God. And anyone who is equal with God, is anyone equal with God? No. So then who is Jesus? God. Every time you see Jesus allowing people to worship him, either he was a charlatan or he was saying, yeah, that's fine because I'm God, right? That's how this works. 
So he didn't say it wasn't robbery, something to be grasped. Why would he grasp something that he already has? He says he didn't consider it robbery to be equal with God because he was equal with God because he's God. But he made himself. He, he pushed himself down and he emptied himself of the prerogatives and added humanity and became a man, taking on the form of, of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. Now, that didn't mean, again, that doesn't mean that he was just had a shell and he was really kind of God walking around. If you read the Bhagavad Gita or something like that, you see God came down. That's not what happened. He actually became a man. This means that Jesus, this means that Jesus had to learn how to walk. This means he had to learn how to talk. That means he, he needed to, probably lost at soccer a few times. It means that he, he needed to learn how to become a carpenter. He probably made a couple of really bad, you know, boxes like I would, right? And, 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 and did some bad things while he was learning. He learned And he says, in being found in appearance of a man, he humbled himself and became obedient. He willingly took a lower position. This would be the same thing. I, I wrote this down from another Bible scholar. He said, it would be like a king laying aside the tokens of his royalty, his, his signet ring, his crown, his robe, his clothes, and putting on the habit of a merchant, right? So a king gets off his throne, takes off his ring, takes off his crown, takes off his robe, puts on regular street clothes, and walks about his kingdom. Is he any less king? No. That's what happened here. He didn't cease to be king or the highest of his own dominions, but he took that upon himself. Man was not, he didn't put on manliness as a costume. He became, and he took on humanity. It says here, it says, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of the death, even the death of the cross, specifically the death of the cross. There was no worse way to be killed Matter of fact, when the Romans came up with crucifixion, they said, they said, what's the worst thing we could do to extend the horror and trauma and pain the longest without actually killing the person? To make it the worst thing, and that's how they came up with crucifixion. And the Romans actually said, that is so awful, you can't do that to any Roman citizens. You can only do it to the scum of the earth. But he became obedient even to that death. Listen to what um, uh, Bible scholar Gusick, uh, David Gusick said. He said he humbled himself. He was humble in that he took on the form of a man and not a more glorious creature like an angel. He was humble in that he was born in an obscure and oppressed place. He was humble in that he was born into poverty amongst a despised people. He was humble in that he was born as a child instead of appearing as a man. He could have done that, right? I mean, he, he, might, have, he might have used his miraculous powers and just popped in here, glowing, like he did on the, on the Mount of Transfiguration. Everybody gets to see him as he is. And he could, have, he could have used his powers almost magically to make us all worship him, right? And yet he chose to say, instead, people will worship me when they see what I've actually done for them. He was humble in learning and practicing a trade. And even the humble trade of a builder. He was humble in the long wait until he, until he launched into public ministry. He was humble in the companions and the disciples that he chose. They, they were outcasts and people who were despised and hated, and yet he chose them as apostles and friends. He was humble in the audience that he appealed to and the way that he taught. He was humble in the temptations that he allowed and endured. He was humble in weakness and hunger and thirst and the tiredness that he endured. He was humble in his total obedience to the Heavenly Father. He was humble in his submission to the Holy Spirit. He would, think about that. He was equal to the Father, equal to the Spirit, and yet he did no miracles until the Holy Spirit enabled him. He, did, he said, I don't say a single word unless God the Father tells me I can say it. 
He was humble in choosing and submitting to the death of the cross. He, he actually said, I could call down legions of angels and have them come and, come and take me. And yet I'm not doing that. He was humble in, his agony, in the agony of his death. He didn't cry out. He didn't blame anybody. He actually prayed for their forgiveness. He was humble in the shame, mocking, and public humiliation of his death. He was humble in enduring the spiritual agony and the sacrifice of the cross. And the Apostle Paul says, let this mind be in you. That doesn't mean we're to be a doormat. Jesus wasn't a doormat. But we are to be humble and understand that God may have something better working than what we have in mind. Because it was this, that therefore God exalted, has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. What is the name above every name? Before, at the time of the writing of this, what would be the name above every name? To a Jewish mind, what would be the name? When Paul was a Jew and writing this, what would be the name above every name? It would be Yahweh. It would be Yahweh. He gave him a name that's equivalent to Yahweh, I am that I am, or Jehovah, however you want to pronounce it. He says he gave him a name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus, no higher name, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have not only obeyed in my presence only, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation. Work this mind into us. And the only way that we can work this mind into us is if we take that, that, those chapters, verses 5 through 11, and go, what does this mean in my life? How, am I acting like this? Am I living a life that is worthy of that sacrifice? Of Jesus humbling him, the God of the universe, becoming a man and dying a, a, a criminal's death in my place so that I could walk free? Am I living a life and responding to things, a, a life that is worthy of, of that sacrifice? He says, if you have obeyed, it is God who works both in you to will and to do his good pleasure. And then he says this, he says, here's how, here's how this looks. Do all things without complaining and disputing, that you may become harmless and blameless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation. I think the idea that, that suddenly the things that we're facing as a nation are new, <laughs> probably not, right? He said that we should be blameless and without complaining, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation. Because if we will do this, we'll shine as lights in the world. Because crookedness and perverseness and complaining and pride darken the world, and humility lights it. Holding fast to the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that, that I have not run or labored in vain. And yes, I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and, uh, and service of your faith. And I'm glad to, and rejoice in you all. For the same reason, you should be glad and rejoice with me. Now, he comes back to himself and he says something that is really important. He says that he's being poured out like a drink offering. And you're kind of like, uh, uh, Old Testament reference, drink offering. There was like a wave offering. There was a this offering. There was that offering. There was a drink. Like, what was that? Well, the drink offering... The drink offering was an offering of when they made a, when they, there was one time when they made it as a sin offering, but it was because of the forgiveness of sins. Most of the time it was a thankfulness offering, other things of a rejoicing, joyful nature that they also brought a vat of wine. And they would take that thing and nobody drank it. They would pour it out on the altar because wine was considered a, a drink for rejoicing and celebration. 
And God was saying, bring that to me, and I'll rejoice and celebrate with you. Now, here's the interesting thing. The drink offering was not allowed for the children of Israel from the time of the, of the giving of the law. It was not allowed until they entered into the promised land. He actually says in, in Numbers, he says, when you've entered into the promised land and have rest, then start offering a drink offering. Let's think of what he's saying. When you have rest from your labors, when you have seen the promise of God fulfilled, then offer a drink offering. What Paul is saying is the time of rejoicing is right now. Because God is with us, because of what Jesus has done, the time of rejoicing is right now. And me being poured out like a drink offering is not like, oh, I'm being wrung out. No, I'm being poured out in rejoicing because the 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 the, the, the um, the curtain has been torn in two, and God has, has come out of the temple and lives in our hearts, and we now, right now, live in the promised land. We have eternal life and the benefits of it right now. This is what Paul is saying. We have the benefits of eternal life right now. Now, I know there's still some crud that's going on, and I know there's still some stuff that's not cool that's going on, and that'll be taken care of in heaven, but we have the benefits of that right now because God is with us today, just like he'll be with us on Wednesday. And my sins are forgiven, and because my sins are forgiven, I can rejoice. And Paul says, I want you to rejoice with me, just like I'm being rejoiced. And if my life is being poured out, it's being poured out like a drink offering, not in sadness or shame or embarrassment or, or pity, but in rejoicing because of what God has done. You see his focus on who God is and how that affected how he saw his circumstances? So let's look at this and and then we'll close up. Um, I'm going to skip Hebrews 12. Uh, It just says, just so you know, it says Jesus Christ saw this rejoicing. The joy that was set before him was when he was hanging on the cross. And now having conquered the cross, having conquered death, he says the time for the drink offering, if you will, the time for rejoicing is now. Here's the thing I want us to get at, and we'll get to this rope and then we'll close. In John chapter 5, verse 9 through 13, he says, if we receive the witness of men, well, the witness of God is greater. For this is the witness of God, which he has testified of his son. Listen to what he's saying. John switches and is using legal terms. He's saying this is the witness He who believes, listen, this is the witness of his son. He who believes in the son of God has the witness in himself. I'm going to stop for a second. You may not be able to put it into deep theological terms. But if you have received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you have made this life exchange with him, or you have given him the wreckage of your current life and received the brand new life from him, if you've been born again, then you know that something has changed. And again, you might, in the beginning, I, I, I didn't understand all the scriptures for it, but I knew that something had clicked inside of me. Something had lifted off of me. I felt different. You should have the witness of the Holy Spirit. And if you don't have the witness of the Holy Spirit in your life, then it's a witness that you don't have the Holy Spirit in your life. If you don't have the witness that you're saved, then it is a witness that you aren't or that you're confused and you need to do something about it. He says, he who believes in the Son of God has the witness of God himself in himself. He who does not believe in God has made God a liar because he has not believed the testimony that God has given of his Son. Now, this is actually a legal term. Think about testimony in a court. And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life. This is the testimony. 
and that this life is in his son. Ready? This is, this is, this is you know, I, do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth? Do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? So help you, you? And God says yes. Okay? It says, he who has the son has life. He who does not have the son of God does not have life. These things I've written to you, in case there's any doubt about it, who believe in the name of the son of God, that you may know you have eternal life. And that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. This is an amazing thing. Because what he's saying here is he's saying that if you have the Son, if you have received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you've asked him to come into your life, if you've received his love, you've received his forgiveness, and you've received the new life from him, you have right now eternal life. Your eternal life started on the day that you did that. In other words, if you could picture there being a timeline of your life. Here's the day you were born, and somewhere out here, here's where you are, and somewhere out here is the day you're going to die. That's the timeline of your earthly life. But if here's the day you were born, and here's the day you gave your life to Christ, another timeline starts. That's what John, 1 John is saying. Another timeline starts, and that is the timeline of your eternal life. Your eternal life doesn't begin, if you're a Christian, your eternal life doesn't begin when you die and you see Jesus. Your eternal life begins the day you're saved. And that changes everything. That changes everything. Let's take a second and pray for these guys. Father, uh, don't know um, who needs the emergency vehicle, but somebody does. And uh, so, Lord, we ask that you would be with the people that are in need and also the people that are responding. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so back to this. And what does this have to do with this rope? If you have eternal life, it changes everything. The secular world, do you understand why Listen, I'm not saying that the coronavirus isn't real. I'm not saying it's not something to be concerned about. I'm not, but you know, there's, there's, there's the people who are like, yeah, it's real. Yeah, we need to be concerned. And then there's people that are freaking out, right? Now, look, I understand this election coming up. I want my guy to win, you know, all that kind of stuff like that, right? But then there's people that are freaking out, right? And they freak out if they lose their job, and they flip out if, they, if, they, if their business is closed, and they, all those kinds of things like this, and they're just... <laughs> the reason is, is because if you have a secular mentality, the secular world has no answer for the pandemic. Secular world has no answer for the pandemic. Because in the secular mindset, the only thing that exists... Let's just pray for those guys again, just because they happen to be going past us. So uh, it's a fire engine. So, so Lord, somebody... There's either a serious accident or there's a fire, and it's significant. And uh, so, Lord, we do ask that you would be with them and, uh, and help them in Jesus' name. Amen. The secular mindset says that all I have is what I can see, taste, touch, smell, and prove with my own existence. And that means that there is no God, and when I die, that's it. So, if I lose my job and I lose years of my life, that's a really bad thing. If, if, if the pandemic shuts down my, my life for a year, then that's a, a year less than I have to exist because when it's over, it's over. Now, again, I'm not saying it's not real. I'm not saying it's not significant. I'm not saying it's not something to take seriously. I take it seriously. But it's a different perspective if you go like, hey, there's something more than this. Now, the spiritualist or a Buddhist mindset would say that actually people go all the way off to the other side and say, none of this matters. And what they're trying to do is they're trying to make themselves not feel bad. They say, none of this matters. As a matter of fact, in the Buddhist mindset, they say, all of this is an illusion. What, what we have is an illusion, and we're just going to go back to, to the all soul and, and, and just be part of that, and we become nothing. That's saying that none of this matters. That's a lie, too. Here's the thing. All of this matters Jesus took humanity to himself. 
He said, all of this matters. There's just a whole lot more to it. Look, it looks like this. Picture this rope. Picture this rope being time. Okay? Picture this rope being time. And it goes off into the murky distance of the back office. And you don't know how much time there is, but there's just, this, this is just an infinity. This is time. You see this little piece of purple duct tape on the end here? Let's say that this represents your life. This represents your birth and then your death, and then this is the rest of time. And we're worried about Wednesday. And we're worried about this little four, what, oh my goodness, what if my guy doesn't get elected? What's going to happen in the next four years? This little tiny little, right? What happens to my 401k? What, you know, what, what, if I, what if I have to spend an extra year in college, right? You know, what, what happens here? What happens there? What happens to my business? And we, we're so concerned about this, and we forget that we get to live for all of this. Now, this is part of it. I'm not saying that this doesn't matter, because the decisions that you make in this little strip right here determine what happens over here. But do you think, for a very second, do you think, do you think that if, if there's, do you think that if you don't get to experience love, and the intimacy of being married. Do you think that if you don't get to experience that kind of love, that, that somehow you've missed it and, and, and you'll never experience unconditional love? Do you think that if there's something that you didn't accomplish, do you think that, do you think that Caitlin, my daughter Caitlin, with all of her disabilities, do you think that she one day will not be able to understand the greatness of God? Just because today she has a, she has a, a disability that, that, that has messed up her brain to, so that she can't really grasp a lot of it? maybe as deeply as you or I can, do you think that she'll one day get to be able to see that? You better believe she will. And so we're so wrapped up about this little tiny little thing here. And I'm not saying it's not important because it is. I'm just saying this is not all there is. And I'm glad because I really want a Mustang. But things keep breaking in my house. And, uh, <laughs> and my kids keep needing money. And I keep going, and pretty soon I'll be so old I'll need an automatic in my Mustang, right? Because I won't be able to, it'll hurt to like, right? And, and, I, and so I just believe there'll be Mustangs in heaven someday, right? Uh, but do you, think, do you think that if I, don't, if I don't get that, right? Do you think if I don't get to go to Fiji, I always wanted to go to Fiji. you think if I don't get to go to Fiji, I won't get to go places? When I get to explore the universe that God has made? Out over here? What do you guys think we're just going to be hanging out on, on clouds playing harps? That would be bad. I was never a good harp player to begin with. Right? Do you think we'll get to do stuff and build things and see things? Amazing things. It's not that it doesn't matter. It's that it's attached to my eternal life. If you have Jesus, you have eternal life right now. We should start thinking about that. And maybe we should start thinking about the decisions and the actions that we take Today, not in view of the end of this tape, but in view of the beginning of the rest of the rope. And guess what? God's already here. He says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. It was taking me that long to prepare. He, built the, he, he made the universe in six days. But he's been working on the place for you and I to be there with him for over 2,000 years. I think it's going to be pretty cool. I think it's going to be very cool. And that's the same God that walks with us today. So let's pray. I'm going to do a couple of things here. I'm going to pray for us first. And then I'm just going to put this out to you. 
that maybe you're sitting here, you're in the sound of my voice, you're here in this room, you're in the sound of my voice, and you do not know that you have eternal life, and everything has felt overwhelming to you. And maybe the reason is not because of pride, but maybe it's just because you haven't known how great God is. And you recognize your need for him, and you recognize what Jesus Christ has done for you. And you need to receive that now and receive eternal life. And so I'm going to pray first, and then we're going to pray together. I'm just going to challenge you in the quietness of your own heart, if that's you right now, that you make a decision that you're going to surrender your life to Jesus Christ. So let me pray first. Father, I thank you that you are way bigger and way more loving and more amazing than we could ever possibly imagine. And so I ask, Lord God, by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would simply be true to your word, that you would, by your Holy Spirit, convict us of our sin, of your righteousness, and of the coming judgment. That you would see in our hearts our needs, and you would reveal to us how great your love is for us. If you're here today, whether you would like to reaffirm your faith in Christ or put your faith in Christ for the very first time, I'd like you to pray with me and along with me now. Just say, dear God, you know that I am a sinner. I can't change that on my own. But I believe that Jesus Christ is your son. That he came to earth for me. That he died on the cross in my place. I believe Jesus rose from the dead so that I could be forgiven. Please forgive me now and come into my life and all that I am and all I ever will be, I surrender it to you now. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, what we've been doing is having someone come up. Uh, Pastor Susan uh, had been coming up, but she's not here. Uh, we've had some of the other uh, pastors uh, uh, come up, and, um, but... Charlie and Patty aren't, aren't here today. So what I'd like to do is, uh, if you're here, we can't have anybody um, come forward and have us pray for you, which is what we normally do. Um, and if you're here and this is your first time, we've got like a gift for you and stuff like that. But if you have a, any prayer needs or if there is something that we can pray for you specifically about or um, if you have something that you'd like us to pray for other people about, we're going to just take a couple of minutes and pray right now about that. So if that's you, um, if you could just stand to your feet so we know who we're praying for. Okay. Okay. Father, you know the great thing is that we don't need to know the details because you do. Lord, you see myself and every person in this room who's standing. You see every person who's, who's maybe watching online. And you know our needs. And so, Lord, we just lift them up to you right now. You said wherever two or more are gathered in your name, there you are in the midst of us. And so if you're here, I know that you hear us. If you hear us, then we have confidence that we have the things that we desire from you. So, Lord, I ask in your way, with your fingerprint on it, that you would meet these needs, whether they are physical, emotional, financial, or the needs about people's future. Lord, I ask that you would do that in our lives and that you would do it in such a way that brings you glory, that makes you bigger in our lives and therefore brings us closer to you. In Jesus' name, amen. 